News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you bought your turkey yet? I did my Thanksgiving shopping yesterday, and let me tell you, the final bill hurts. There is no getting around that. High grocery prices have certainly frustrated Canadian consumers. Yesterday, we heard the federal government announce that major companies such as Loblaw and Empire and Walmart and others have committed to implementing some measures to lower grocery prices. But will it actually do that? We'll have analysis on the announcement coming up in a few minutes. Right now, we're actually going to hear more about what was announced. Talib Nurmohamed joins us, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Canadian Heritage. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what are these measures and what kind of a difference do you think they're going to make? Yeah, so there are, there are five key measures. And I think, look, this is, all, this is all predicated by the fact that I think everyone feels what you've just described when you were doing your groceries. I think we've all seen it. And it's something that needs to, it needs action, it needs immediate action. And so that's what we've, that is what we have sought to do, right? By first bringing in the CEOs of the five major grocery chains in the country, bringing in the manufacturers and telling them really that this needs to get solved. And if they're not able to solve it, then we're going to solve it for them has been a remarkable, I think it's a remarkable first. And the result of that, frankly, has been that they are, uh, they've taken the message seriously and they are indeed stepping up. So there are five key commitments, right? The first was to secure commitments from the largest chains that they are going to do something about this. And we will see uh, I think in the very in the very near future, we're starting to see some of it already, but certainly in the next few days, the, the reality of what that actually means is going to uh, is going to be coming to the fore. And I think some of that is going to look like, you know, 25 to 30 products that are staples, things that we care about, that, that we want to feed our families: chicken, fish, you know, uh, dairy. The things that we the things that we are most concerned about making sure we have access to are the ones where we're going to see the biggest. Uh, biggest reductions and the and the biggest benefit to Canadians. Number one. Number two is making sure that the Office of Consumer Affairs has a grocery task force, which is going to be looking, you know, closely and carefully at making sure um, grocers' commitments and actions that are being taken by folks in the industry are being are being met. Making sure that if there's, you know, things like shrinkflation or dequalification happening, that is to say, where you, you're paying the same but the package is smaller, that that doesn't happen, and so we're calling that out. The third is going to be the grocery code of conduct, which is going to make sure that there is not only um, strength and resilience in the supply chain, but making sure that there's transparency and fairness across the industry. The fourth, you know, is about, is really data collection, making sure that we have data on food prices and what that looks like across the supply chain to make sure that there's transparency. People know what a product actually costs. And then the the final one, which is probably the most abstract, but probably the most meaningful over the long term, is modernizing the Competition Act to make sure that um, people can't just say, oh, we're going to put these two businesses together because it's more efficient. If it's going to have a negative impact on Canadians, we're going to take a very, very different position on this. But I think the key is here, look, we're in solution mode, and the big chains, Walmart, Costco, Loblaws, and all the brands they represent, Sobeys and all the brands they represent, and Metro, which doesn't affect us here in B.C., are all at the table. They are all willing participants in this journey, and they've all made that commitment. And, you know, you've already seen some grocers saying in response, here's how in, turn, in time for Thanksgiving you're going to be able to have a quality meal at a reasonable price, uh, and we're going to see more of that over the course of the coming days. Now, how do you know that this isn't just what the companies would have done anyway? Like, how do you know they're actually going above and beyond because the government sat down with them? Well, you know... 
I'm not sure what rationale uh, companies have for reducing prices on their own, right? I think it it is when you are when you are unfor- unfortunately when you are in an unregulated industry, um, that is the name of the game for for them historically has been profits. But I think this has been one of those things where there is a realization that there would have been other action on the part of the government. And the fact that we said that. And the fact that they understood that is why you were seeing the response that you're seeing. And I would argue that by taking an approach that we're actually working, seeking to work together and, you know, outlining expectations and making sure that they understand that we could take other action is a good enough reason to do it. Look, I think it's in everybody's interest, including grocers, to to give Canadians uh, the sense that if there are good values that are being had at the store, that they're going to build brand loyalty over the long term. And that's an important thing. Was there an actual commitment then for price reductions? Like, will we actually see that at the grocery store? I think you will absolutely see that over the course of the next few days and weeks. In fact, uh, there are some that, based on the conversations that we have had and based on the research that we have done over the course of the last few days, have already seen that impact on certain products, certain staple products. So, yeah, I think Canadians are going to see that if they haven't already started to see it in the last couple of days. Certainly not last week, but certainly in the last couple of days. And going forward, absolutely, I think you're going to see that. All right, we'll see what happens. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. That's Talib Nur Mohammed, who is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Canadian Heritage, also Vancouver MP, talking about the initiatives announced by the federal government yesterday. You know, big fanfare on this one, big press conference. Oh, yeah, we brought the grocery store CEOs in. But in the end, are you really going to notice? Is this going to make a difference to your grocery store bill? This is Mornings with Simi. We're all making a trip to the grocery store this weekend. So many of us are making that big meal coming up in the next few days. So there's no avoiding those high prices on grocery store shelves. But of course, as we just heard, now comes word from the federal government that grocery store chains are going to be taking action to address this food inflation. They've announced measures such as aggressive discounts on essential food products, a grocery task force, and a grocery code of conduct for fairness and transparency in the sector. But all right, sure, these things sound good, but are they actually going to work? So let's break that down now. Mike Van Massau joins us, professor of food economics at the University of Guelph. Mike, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So do you think these measures are actually going to help us spend less money at the grocery store? Well, the first thing I'll say is we are already spending less money at the grocery store. While the annual rate of inflation is a little higher than than general inflation still, and don't get me wrong, we are paying more and it hurts. The last three months, we've seen two months of, of price decreases. And, and so it looks like we're trending in the right direction. So to me, this is a little bit of making an announcement when when things are looking better already. So the the first thing is what the what the government announced the grocers are doing sounds a bit to me like business as usual. We see discounts, we see price matching, we see uh price freezes as we saw last year. So unless we have something to compare it to and and we can actually benchmark that this is this is happening, I'm not convinced that that a, the grocers have contributed a whole bunch to inflation, but this B, that this is actually different from what they would have been doing this fall anyway. Is this, they're just kind of pointing out to the federal government, yeah, yeah, we'll just document for you the things that we do. 
Yeah, that that that's 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 my impression. I mean, when the government announced that they were bringing the grocers in, they used the word stabilized prices and and they didn't say which prices. And again, we're not hearing in the announcement yesterday which prices they'll offer discounts on or which products or how big. So really it's going to be very difficult for anyone to tell whether anything has changed or not. So I hate to be a cynic, but I'm not optimistic that this is going to make a lot, a, a lot of difference relative to prices that look like they're coming down anyway. Okay, so what was the purpose of this exercise? Well, well again, I, <clears throat> Simi, I hate to be a cynic, but <laughs> I think we had a, we had a government that was uh, uh, getting hammered on cost of living things. Uh, was down in the polls and and said we need to do something and so they made an announcement uh, a, a vague announcement and and uh, and now are saying look uh, because we called these people in we're going to see more competition really to me doesn't pass the smell test now I think uh, and and so uh, to me it's a bit of a bit of political theater it, what would make a difference, in your opinion, Mike, if we really wanted to see those prices stabilize or, or lower at the grocery store? What does need to be done? Well, frankly, Simi, I think part of the problem is there's not a lot of a lot the government can do. I think the government's getting blamed for higher grocery prices and, and probably shouldn't be, and it's trying to get credit for lower grocery prices and probably shouldn't because there's not a lot within the government's control. You know, we've got this kind of perfect storm of things impacting food prices. We've got the war in Ukraine. We have extreme weather events like flooding in, in the Salinas Valley and in, in, in the U.S. All of these things at lower Canadian dollar, higher fuel prices, all beyond the control of, uh, of the government. So, but, you know, if, if they can't do a lot about it, it's a little bit wait it's a little bit wait and see and it looks like things are getting better but let's talk about the grocery code of conduct for fairness and transparency in the sector is this not a sector mike that needs this given the stories like the price fixing bread scandal things like that that we have seen well uh, first thing i'll do is 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 highlight that the bread price fixing was on suppliers uh, Canada Bread and uh, and Weston were were bread suppliers. You know, none of the other, other than Loblaws who owned uh, who owned Weston's. Uh, they they there wasn't uh, another uh, another grocer found guilty. But the grocery code of conduct to me is a good thing to do. We do see the grocers wield market power on their suppliers and say, you know, if you want access to this large chunk of the Canadian market. You need to pay us listing fees. You need to give us good payment terms. You need to give us better prices, all of those things. And so putting parameters around or, or, or guidelines around what they can ask for and how much they can ask for is a good thing. I'm just not sure it's going to lower grocery prices. It, you know, and, and, and if, you, if, if we look back to the, to the uh, testimony of people like Michael McCain from uh, uh, who's a big who's a big supplier said he's agnostic about a code of conduct he doesn't think it'll bring prices down i actually think if anything it might make things more expensive so not a bad thing to do but not something that's going to bring prices down okay is this just giving notice then to some of these grocery store companies which were you know reporting good profits saying listen you got to be careful here canadians don't like this 
Well, I think the one good thing that's been announced and, and meaningful thing is that the Competition Bureau is going to have more ability to, to ask for more data, to do more analysis on what is causing these higher prices. And frankly, uh, that will lay a more solid foundation for saying, what should we be doing about it? So, yeah, I think, I, I think the grocers have been put on notice that the Competition Bureau is going to have a little bit more teeth. People are paying more attention. And, and, and hopefully uh, we'll make better policy going forward. All right, Mike, thanks so much for breaking it down for us. Thanks, Simi. Have a great day. That's Mike von Massau, who is a professor of food economics at the University of Guelph, breaking down this a big announcement by the federal government yesterday on their taking action on grocery store prices. But do you actually think this is going to make a difference? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And here's the other thing. like I certainly made adjustments to my grocery list uh, because of the different prices and how the cost of things have gone up yesterday when I was grocery shopping for the Thanksgiving dinner. And I'm wondering if you have done the same. What have you changed about your grocery buying habits because of the prices? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer on this Friday morning. And boy, do we have stuff to talk about. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. And I'm sitting there just getting ready to check out a work yesterday afternoon and I get this letter <laughs> from you on the Surrey Policing Services and yep. I go, didn't Simi and I say that thing was settled back in July? Uh, or the time before line? that? Yeah. Or the time before that? Yeah, man plans, God laughs. There we go. It's yeah. Just wild out there in Surrey. And honestly, this letter, so this letter is from the Deputy Minister of Public Safety uh, and the, head of, the head of policing services. Head of policing me. services so, to uh, Mayor Brenda Locke and yeah. essentially just says to her, you're, you're misleading the public. You're telling the public one thing and you know it's not true because here's all the times that we have tried to meet with you and tried to settle these questions and you are obstructing us. Yeah, I mean, first of all, this is Glenn Lewis. He's a public servant and I assure you he didn't write this letter without the full approval of the cabinet and the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, that's who he's really speaking of. He lists, uh, well, first of all, he says, hey, this thing was <laughs> settled uh, by the government back in July when the Solicitor General said to Surrey, your plan to go back to the RCMP doesn't work. Stick with Surrey Policing Services. And the province promised Surrey $150 million to go ahead. So this is a huge provincial government bribe to stay the course. Other municipalities win. Hey, we're obeying the law. Where's our $150 million? So it's a, a blistering letter, but cold in a sense, too, because it says, look, you have to provide policing services. It's your uh, requirement to do that. Uh, and then it says intransigence, you're not meeting with us. Uh, your officials, when they meet with us, say we can't do anything because we don't have council's approval to go ahead. It's really amazing. It goes on for about four pages yeah. of these details. And, and you know, it, not only is the thing not settled, when you read the letter, you go, how is the provincial government ever going to settle this? How are they going to make it happen? I, uh, you know, was talking when, when we read it yesterday, uh, Keith Baldry of Global, our colleague, and he said, we both said the same thing. How does the provincial government make a municipality do something 
if the municipality really doesn't want to do it. And that's clearly what's going on out there in Surrey. Oh, yeah. The letter is uh, astonishing. I've, I've never seen anything yeah. quite like that. So we're going to be speaking with a uh, city councillor about that from Surrey. And we'll speak with Mike Farnworth actually coming up in our 8 yeah. o'clock hour too and get his reaction to this. Because you're right. This obviously was a last resort for the government. But what else could they do at this point? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the New Democrats are doing very, very well in the opinion polls. And when you're in government, it's nice to know the public would reelect you if an election were held tomorrow. But th there is a certain temptation in power, in especially in provincial government. We had, a, we had an NDP cabinet minister back in the 1990s say, don't forget government can do anything. And when you've been in power for a while as a provincial government, you really think you can do anything. And I think the New Democrats believed they'd settled this matter in July. They told Surrey what to do. And because they didn't want to endanger the NDP's hold on Surrey, uh, the majority of MLAs out there are New Democrats and four of them are cabinet ministers. Because the New Democrats didn't want to endanger that by ordering Surrey to go ahead, they offered them this incredible, I, it's a bribe, $150 million to stay the course to cover the extra costs of Surrey policing services. I think they really thought that was it. Yeah. And they're now discovering that, no, it isn't it. You know, Surrey is dragging its feet for whatever reasons. Um, Surrey is saying, no, no. You took, I mean, Surrey's comeback on this is interesting, and we haven't heard from Brenda Locke, but we've heard from her before. Surrey's comeback on this is, hey, you guys decided that it was your policing plan that was going to rule the roost out here, not ours, so make it work. Go ahead. See if you can do it. <laughs> but the letter... It's, it's incredible. <laughs> the letter See. says they're trying to. All they're, they're trying to even meet yeah. with them to explain to them how it's going to work, and they won't even take, the city won't even take the meetings. Well, it's a passive-aggressive strategy, uh, but essentially they're daring the New Democrats to, uh, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Oh, my God. And are these I, children? Yeah, are these I really children, Vaughn? I don't understand. Well, who faces the next election with the voters in Surrey? Well, the provincial and government, who's yeah. who's going to pay for the cost of this? If the, you know, there's some suggestion, Simi, that the $150 million isn't enough to cover all this, right? You think it would be. I'm sure the government said, what's the, you know, the highest number we can shovel out here with our to budget get this done, to yeah. make this happen. I, I, this is really a fascinating standoff. We've never been here before. We, in the past, you may recall that the provincial government has gotten very, very upset with school boards for not doing certain things. Right. And they fired the school board and they brought in a trustee. And that was dramatic enough. And it hasn't happened very often, but it does happen. But this would take it to another level. Like, what do you do with a municipality that won't do what you want to do when you're the provincial government and you think you're the master of the universe? All right, we are back with Vaughn Palmer. And Vaughn, I forgot to congratulate you and Victoria for, uh, you know, winning that uh, greatest cities list on Condé Nast Traveler. I uh, think it every time I come home from a holiday, this is not a difficult place to come home to. Victoria oh. is just a wonderful place. I've now lived here about half my life, and uh, I'm glad that the travel agencies uh, have discovered it. Uh, Are you? Because I was thinking that's going to mean a lot more people coming your way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. It's, you know, uh, that's, that's true, but 
it's a city that depends an awful lot on tourism and that had a pretty rough ride for a few years. So true. Um, that's a good thing. And, and, you know, you've had the experience uh, maybe about Vancouver. It always fascinates me when I travel. You know, I was uh, on this five-week road trip uh, in the U.S. Southwest, and every now and then somebody would ask you, me about uh, where are you from and I would say Victoria and more often than not they would say oh that's a beautiful place I've been there or they would say oh that's a beautiful place I wish I could go there so I'm not going to argue with them there are many, as you know I have a lot of fun at the experience of Victoria <laughs> you but, do <laughs> uh, you know, the, the travel agencies nevertheless are right I will say one thing uh, I noticed this morning when you were talking about it to John Strait um, you referred to, or he referred to, two of the city's tourist attractions. Uh, one, the Royal BC Museum, and the other, Keith Baldry. And yes. I can tell you from firsthand inspection, they are both a wreck. <laughs> <laughs> don't come here for that. Or them. Yeah, don't come <laughs> uh, all right. Now, Mike Farnworth had a busy couple of days. We were talking about the Surrey policing situation. But the other thing that everybody was talking to him about yesterday was the crackdown on open drug use. Yeah, so you'll remember back in the spring, and I'm sure the government wishes we wouldn't remember this, that when mayors and councillors in particular and the public began complaining that the government's decriminalization of drugs and promotion of safe drug use publicly was leading to open drug use in parks, recreation facilities, uh, skateboard parks, all over, essentially public space. Initially, the government really didn't want to hear this. Uh, you heard from New Democrats, oh, you know, give the experiment a chance. Okay, well, that's great if it's not happening in the park next to your house. Uh, and then they said, uh, you're fear-mongering, you're exaggerating. They told the liberals that when they, they were still called the liberals in the house, and they told them that in the house. And then you heard from the advocates that, oh, uh, you're going to stigmatize addictions again. You're going to stigmatize drug use and you're going to drive the users back underground and into unsafe spaces and you're going to cost people their lives. Well, that was the spring. Uh, yesterday, uh, the New Democrats brought in legislation, Simi, that pretty much says the critics were right. It, we've got a crackdown on open drug use in pretty much every public space in the province, and the crackdown, Simi, is backed up with the power of the police to say move on, to seize the drugs, and uh, if necessary, to arrest them. So it's a major, major backdown or a major reversal, Simi, and, and the premier yesterday insisted that none of that was true. The government is still committed to decriminalization, and this doesn't recriminalize drug use, and it's not like that at all. So um, I would say the initial reaction to them is they got it right finally. I think that's the public reaction. But, Simi, I see the advocates are very, very yeah. upset about this. They say it's the end of decriminalization. It's going to cost people lives. They're saying exactly what the New Democrats were saying last spring when this was brought up in the first place. Yes, they are. I know it's been a, really a strong pushback on that. And even the headlines and all the like national papers yeah. are the same thing, as in BC is dialing back decriminalization. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think I listened to the Premier carefully yesterday, and in the midst of denying what he was doing, he also pretty much told us why he was doing it. Uh, they were very concerned that this was going to undermine support for what they were doing, that the public backlash 
uh, was going to discredit the whole notion of decriminalization. And other jurisdictions are watching British Columbia as well. And I think the same reaction there is, we don't need this kind of political trouble. So the government has got to hope that it hasn't acted too late. I mean, look, to the drug it, users yeah. aren't going to go out and read this report and this legislation. They're not going to get the message. The police are going to have to be rebriefed on what they were told earlier in the year about how they should proceed. And it may be that this thing is too far along for the government to pull back on it and actually produce results. We'll see. But this is a very risky, belated response by the government, and we don't know how it's going to play out. Okay, there's that. And also, I have to talk quickly about BC Ferries here, too. And I've, I've got Nicholas Jimenez coming on in at, after the 7.30 news, because I'm really curious to know how appointing new vice presidents is going to help the ferries run on time. Well, you know, Thanksgiving weekend is coming up, and the ferry wanted to uh, offer some reassurance to the public. So we got a press release yesterday saying they've reorganized the corporation. We've got, I don't know, four divisions now and more vice presidents. Uh, I love the comment from our colleague Rob Shaw. Yes. He, uh, he said, uh, you know, the health regions have already improved, proven that with more vice presidents, you get better results in the <laughs> ER. And uh, I'll be interested to hear what he says. Um, I like to think it's a satirical response to the government's empty gesture earlier this week where they announced the ferries were going to be, the government was going to claw back uh, some of its giant subsidy to BC ferries as a penalty for service cancellation. So these guys, <laughs> it's fascinating to me how often the problems a government creates are problems it creates for itself. The opposition some days can just sit there and watch the parade go by. They certainly can. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Vaughn and I were just talking about, you kind of had to know this was going to show up back in the news, right? It's a leaked letter from the police services director of British Columbia that has come out, and it's absolutely blasting Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke and her council team, accusing them of dragging their heels and in some cases misleading the public on the police transition. Now, the letter is is really quite something. It goes on to cite uh, public comments made by Mayor Locke about how she's not been consulted and how the province is communicating and then directly contradicts those comments by providing the times, the dates that they have requested her presence and her input and she hasn't responded to them kind of directly puts the mayor on the hot seat for ignoring the issues of the transition and the impacts on the community, accuses her well, pretty much of undermining the process. So what is the reaction like to this in Surrey? I would love to hear from Surrey residents on this. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line. But to talk more about this letter and really where Surrey is at right now, we're joined by Linda Annis, the Surrey First City Councillor. Thank you for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. What did you think when you read this? Well, I think he nailed it. You know, we've been, the city has just been in the state of uh, going nowhere on the police transition for far, far too long. In fact, a year now. And as the mayor has said, you know, it's costing the taxpayers each and every month $8 million. And I think not only is the uh, minister quite fed up with this, uh, but so are many of the residents of Surrey. And she needs to show some leadership and get on with it and quit stalling. Is there any indication, though, that that's actually going to happen? 
Well, I sure hope so. You know, I think this letter has put her on notice. And, you know, it's very unfortunate here in Surrey. We've got very, very professional staff that, um, you know, really have their hands tied because the mayor, you know, isn't providing the direction to them to move ahead. She keeps pointing to the province, and it's not the province issue. This police force is for Surrey, and Surrey needs to show leadership and design the police force that they want. Right. So it's clear that there have been multiple offers of meetings, uh, including to discuss uh, the financial assistance, all of that. And it's and the letter actually says the city has yet to engage ministry officials to finalize details on this matter. What is going on behind the scenes in Surrey, Councillor Annis? I know a lot of people wonder about this. Well, I wonder, too, because this is a real embarrassment for the city. Uh, The mayor needs to step up and be returning these phone calls and getting on with it. Uh, She keeps saying that, you know, the provincial government doesn't want to meet with her or won't meet with her. Well, she needs to pick up the phone, call them and get in the room with the minister and with the Surrey Police Service um, and uh, the RCMP and federal government and get this moving on. It's um, far too costly, and it's really sidelined everything else that's happening in Surrey. We seem to be only focused on policing and many other important issues that we have to deal with, with more than a 1,000 people moving here each and every month. It seems things like housing and our roads and schools and all of that are getting sidelined, and this isn't good news for the residents of Surrey. What are you hearing, though, from constituents? Because every time we talk about this, I certainly get emails from people on on both sides of this issue. So what are you hearing? Well, I think people just want us to get on with it. It's all we've talked about, it seems like, for the past five years. And people are just fed up with it. Uh, You know, uh, first of all, it was the Surrey Police Service, and then the the mayor, Mayor Locke, put a halt to that when she was elected, and now we're in this kind of nowhere land. Uh, she wanted to go back to the RCMP, uh, but having said that, uh, the province has said, no, that's not the route you're going, so we need to get on with it. And the residents are getting very frustrated. They just want to know that we've got good public safety here in Surrey, and I don't think, quite frankly, at this stage, they really care who's policing us as long as we have a really first-class police service here. Is, you know, we were talking about the impact of this letter. It's really, I haven't seen anything quite like it before. But in the end, Councillor Annis, do you think this letter will actually make a difference? I sure hope so. You know, she needs to, you know, put her political biases aside and just get on with it. Uh, This is really an embarrassment for the residents of Surrey and for City Council when, you know, when uh, we're stuck here and we're wasting taxpayers' money to the tune of $266,000 each and every day, um, we can't afford that. And I know there's been lots of concern about increase in property taxes, and this is really going to add to it. You know, since we've been elected, it's been $8 million each and every month. Uh, doing the math, uh, you know, that's almost $100 million that we've wasted just be, because we've been in this state of inertia. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. That's Linda Annis, Surrey First City Councillor, uh, getting her reaction to the situation that the letter that has been leaked from the uh, Deputy Minister, the Director of Police Services of the province, a person who's essentially in charge of policing services uh, in the province, that they've sent this letter to Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke essentially saying, listen, you are saying one thing publicly and you are doing another thing and we are not able to do the work that we need to be doing to get this Surrey policing transition forward. So just some of the things that come directly from this letter, and these are direct quotes, 
City staff have been only minimally engaged in select aspects of this work to date and are seemingly constrained by a lack of clear direction from the mayor and council. That is directly from the letter. The director of policing services also says, quote, it is my observation that this lack of progress and delay is due in large part to a lack of leadership and engagement by city council. Now, those are pretty strong words there, right? Here's another direct quote for you. The city of Surrey has been provided multiple opportunities to collaborate on the development of the formal terms of reference. Despite all this, you stated publicly to the media on September 21st that you had no input on the terms of reference. So this goes on. This is just a few things. This is like a four-page letter. It goes into great detail of, you've said this publicly, but this is what we're actually trying to do. You're not responding to our phone calls. You're not responding to our efforts to meet with you and get this done. And if you're a Surrey resident, like, is this it? Like, you've got so many other issues in your city going on right now. You know, obviously your schools are at a, a straining point there. Kids in portables, you need more work done. You've got all sorts of other issues in your city. And clearly this one big issue seems to be paralyzing the machinery of that city. What is going on? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. I'd love to hear from Surrey residents on this. We're going to speak with the Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth about this and other issues as well coming up uh, later in the show, just after the 8.30 news there. But this is kind of extraordinary in that, you know, someone who is a civil servant put this out there. It is out there and directly saying, you're not, you're not telling the truth publicly about what's actually going on. That does not happen every day. Uh, so yeah, Surrey residents, how do you feel about all of this? Let's hear from you on that one. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot of good work being done in our communities to just help make those public spaces in particular better and more accessible for everyone. We wanted to highlight some of that work that's being done this morning. So Tamara Vetch is with us now, the events and fundraising coordinator for an organization called the Reach Child and Youth Development Society. Tamara, thanks for being here. Hi, Sammy. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. Well, I love talking about playgrounds for kids because, you know, they've changed a lot over the years, but it sounds to me like some of them still need some work, don't they? Well, they sure do. Um, we're, we're actually looking um, at the playground at North Delta uh, Recreation Center, and um, in the last 10 years, uh, the population there has grown. 50% of Delta's population is in North Delta. Many of the families there have children with mobility difficulties and complex needs, and they face additional and cultural barriers to accessing services and programs. So we're looking at a playground that has about 1,188 um, 1, square feet right now that's suitable for about 18 children, and the access to play campaign from REACH will expand it to nearly 3,500 square feet and serve about 54 children at a time. Wow. Okay. That's quite the expansion. So how do you make that happen? Well, uh, wonderfully, I can say that REACH has done this before. We've built other playgrounds in other areas in uh, Surrey, Delta, and Langley. And what we do is we raise the funds through a capital campaign. We have a big event coming up next week at Tasty Indian Bistro, um, and that's called A Taste of Reach. It's the fifth annual, and all the funds from A Taste of Reach this year are going to go to the capital campaign. We access grants 
reports from the government, we uh, reach out to social groups, but we're really looking to the public to support a taste of reach if you can come with tickets. But if you can't come that way, because it's selling out really quickly, um, we're also taking donations. And, and big and small, corporate, individual, we are looking for people to help raise these funds for the playground. It's, you know, I was just thinking while you were talking there, Tamara, like, I hate the fact that we have to fundraise to make a playground more accessible, but this is kind of the world we live in these days, isn't it? It is. It is. And with the population growing as quickly as it is and the diversity and just our awareness uh, around the needs and what we can offer families and children, it's just really important that um, places like Reach Child and Youth Development Society take up the yoke. We help families in all different areas. And when we see a need, we definitely try to fill it. Well, okay. Expanded Playground is a great idea. So you talked about the fundraiser that's happening, but how can people help? Like, is there a website? Where do they go? There is. The website is www.reachchild.org. And uh, we're also on Instagram at Reach Child Events. There is a link on the homepage for um, fundraising, for donations. Um, if anybody wants to get hold of us, it's really easy to do it through that website. Okay, well, listen, best of luck with the event. I can't wait to see this, pro- uh, this playground when it's all done. Thanks so much, Simi. We really appreciate CKNW taking the time to have us on. Anytime. That is Tamara Vetch, the Events and Fundraising Coordinator for the Reach Child and Youth Development Society. Uh, They take a look at playgrounds one at a time and say, hey, you know what? We can fix that. We can make that better. We can make it bigger. We can make it so that it is accessible for all kids. So check them out online. And they are working right now to improve uh, this playground at the North Delta Recreation Center. And desperately needs your help, too. So check them out and give them some help if you can. This is Mornings with Simi. Another busy weekend expected for BC Ferries, and it's been a busy week for executives there too, right? News about potential fines for missing sailings due to crew shortages, oh, a reorganization, some new vice presidents that have been appointed. I mean, all of this adds up to questions, which we hope we can now get answered by our guest. Nicholas Jimenez is with us, the president and CEO of BC Ferries. Thank you for being here. For sure. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. First off, let me ask you, what is BC Ferries doing to prepare for this very busy weekend? Well, we're doing everything we did over the last long weekends in July and August that were really successful for us. We have fortified our traffic management and control programs. We've worked with our parking uh, partners to make sure that that is in place. We have got all the staff we need in place, including those on standby. We've got technology teams in the background doing active monitoring of our systems. So, uh, more customer service staff because, you know, in the event that there is an issue, we've got people to kind of answer phones when people call. So we've essentially got all the, the pieces in place that we hope will be a really successful weekend. It's actually our fourth busiest weekend of the year, so we're not treating it lightly. Okay. And what about the issue of the ships and the maintenance and the breakdowns? How is that going? Um, well, it's going as planned. So actually, as you know, the fall is our the fall and winter and spring are our refit period. So we've got uh, a very... Uh, active plan in place to pull vessels out, make sure they go through their annual refit so they can be certified to to run. Um, The repairs are going uh, well with the the coastal renaissance, so those are in place. Uh, We have a plan for uh, the Spirit of Vancouver Island that will happen after the long weekend, so we're able to find some dry dock space to deal with some cracks in, in, in the hull. 
So we are we're working it, and we're doing everything that we're supposed to be doing when it comes to ships and, and maintaining them safely. Okay, I know that the cruise shortage issue as well is a, a big one. Do you feel adequately prepared for that? Has anything changed in terms of scheduling and your approach to that? No, it hasn't. So we've done we did a massive hiring, as you know, earlier in the year that really helped us through the summer. We saw that in a number of statistics and. Uh, reductions in cancellations resulting to crewing. Now, obviously, we, we kind of draw down a little bit over the fall and winter as, as people stop traveling as much uh, and our sailings uh, schedules change. Uh, but we're, we're ready for, the, for, for this, this peak, just like we'll be ready at Christmas, just like we'll be ready at Easter. Okay, so let's talk about some of the issues that have cropped up then this week. Sure. That, the crew shortage issue is a big one. We had Transportation Minister Rob Fleming on earlier in the week about the whole idea of fining BC ferries if you miss a sailing because of a crew shortage. How do you feel about that? Well, it's interesting that it got as much attention as it did. This has been in the contract for decades. Um, what What's new in this contract is they simplified the language uh, to make to make it a little bit clearer and a little bit easier to understand how these things would work. So it's not a new concept for us. Uh, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, if you think about it, it's actually not a bad concept. We're providing a service. The government is providing, uh, you know, us uh, a subsidy or an amount of money to provide that service. And so essentially it sets minimum levels uh, across sort of the major routes and, and the minor routes. And if we don't meet those minimum levels, uh, for certain reasons, including crewing, um, then some of that that amount that we're we're paid to deliver that service is, is clawed back. So, so as a concept in and of itself, I don't actually have a problem with that. Um, now, it hasn't actually happened very often. I think one time in the last five years. So, I mean, our focus isn't going to be on you know whether it's seven thousand dollars. It's really to make sure that we deliver the service. Uh, full stop. Okay, but does it change anything? Like, can you add more crew? Can you put a bigger pad, pad those numbers a little bit more so you don't have a crew shortage? Um, well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, you know, we, we believe we're going to be able to meet the minimum levels that are in the contract. We, we, we always have. We haven't run into that problem. As I said, in the last five years, we've rarely had an instance where we haven't been able to provide you know, the province through the contract and our customers with that minimum level of service that's going to be required. And I think that'll be true in the future. Right. But you have to cancel sailings though, when that's, that's why, right? Well, like you've canceled sailings because of a crew shortage. We do, but, but the minimum levels include a contingency. So uh, the, we provide more than what's in the contract in terms of minimum levels. So I, I can't give you the exact number, but, uh, but there's essentially, you have to provide at minimum this amount uh, and we do more. Uh, we do more in our peak season and we do more in our off-peak season. So there's a bit of a contingency to allow for exactly what you're describing, those unexpected, uh, sometimes difficult to control circumstances. So do you feel that with the hiring BC Ferries has done this year, that this situation is actually is going to improve? I do. I mean, I, look, I, and I've said this many, many times publicly, um, this is not an overnight fix. You know, the challenges we're facing as a business are systemic and they're, they're years to solve. I mean, we can't just suddenly have all kinds of licensed uh, officers and engineers to run to run your vessels, and we have issues with retirements because we're we're an older workforce. So, you know, the kinds of solutions that we're bringing into the mix. Yes, we're hiring more people today. Yes, we're looking at other countries to bring in licensed mariners, and and we have a lot of work to do to systemically get more people into this industry to improve the way we train and certify our people, to accelerate that process so that they can move through their career paths more quickly. That's 
changes we'll be working on for the next couple of years. Okay. And so I guess as part of that, we saw that there's a bit of a reorganization. That press release went out yesterday and a lot of people looked at that and thought, I don't know, how is appointing some new vice presidents going to help make the fairies better? Well, look, uh, I mean, I think there's some there's misunderstanding in terms of what, what has actually happened. So the, the team today uh, that I announced yesterday is the same size as the team that was in place before I arrived to this company. So what I've done is I've collapsed some divisions, I've eliminated some divisions, and I've created some new ones. So the net effect is essentially the same size team. But what I have done is I've said, look, I'm setting this thing up to solve the problems that we have today. And I'm putting the leaders in place to help us do that work. So that's what every CEO is hired to do, to come in, size up the challenges ahead of them, identify the people to help solve those problems, and then just move on and get on to the work. And that's what I did. Okay, so can you give us an example then of how you think this is going to help deliver better service? Um, well, I can tell you. So we had uh, we don't have operational leaders actually sitting on the executive today. We have a, a chief operating officer model. And so I've elevated engineers, mariners, and terminal uh, leaders onto the executive team. Um, I have created a new division that's going to help us plan better. We, And I'll be honest, I don't think we do a terribly great job in planning. We've got a lot of problems in the business, be they assets in our terminals or our vessels. Uh, and having having an area focused exclusively on getting better at planning and better at making the right investments, I think it's going to help. Uh, I've aligned our safety with our people functions. Uh, safety is critical. There are absolutely no shortcuts to safety. And we have to make sure that the way we're thinking about bringing massive numbers of people into the company, embed them in their DNA safety culture. Uh, so there's a number of things I could go on, but, but, but those just give you a few examples. Right. So what you're saying then is that if there are problems you know, in the infrastructure of BC Ferries, you want to hear directly about those problems, not with the insulation of kind of the executive office. Yeah, I, I want I want those leaders at the table guiding those difficult conversations and helping us make difficult decisions. All right, so it's pretty busy, it sounds like. What else very can we busy. yeah, what it else can we expect? Yeah, expect to hear in the near future. Any other changes coming? Uh, no, we're going to focus on doing what we do uh, and do it well and hopefully do it better in a way that people can feel confident that the system is there for them every day. All right, Nicholas, thanks for your time. Okay, thanks, Simi. Have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. Great week. Great week for the Vancouver Whitecaps. They've clinched a playoff spot. So obviously, first and foremost, we have to congratulate Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, who's with us now. Morning. Morning, Simi, and thank you. Thank yes, you. nicely done. You feeling pretty good? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, first objective of the of the season of the regular season we uh, has been achieved. Now we have another couple of games to try to improve our seed uh, in the in the playoffs. So let's try to have fun. All right, let's try to have some fun. On that note, so you've got a bit of a dynamic duo going on. You've got Ryan Gold and Brian White. They've been leading the charge on the Whitecaps. Some people have given them a nickname, calling them Batman and Robin, and you yeah. don't like that. Why? No. <laughs> well, yeah, well, because I don't like Batman, so that's the thing. And it's like I, it's one of my least favorite uh, uh, superheroes. You say, said like. he's the worst superhero ever. That's what you said. Yes, it is. It's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> what? Well, it's a... It's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, good battle between him and Iron Man. I think there are only two spoiled rich kids that that like to play vigilantes. That's the thing. But they're smart. Uh, they're very smart. They're, they're using their own wits yeah, yeah, to do this. They don't no, have special no, no, powers. No, no. They're, they're using the thing to 
to to just uh, I don't know. It's for for their personal glory than more than for the city. So that's that's I, I never liked them. So that's the thing. Okay. I, I I'm. <laughs> when I saw that, I thought Coach called Batman the worst superhero ever. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Okay, so then what superhero is acceptable? If we want to call Ryan Gold and Brian White a superhero duo, know. my favorite superhero is Spider Man. So that's the thing. So oh, that's Spider Man's uh, a good uh, choice. And uh, I also love the fact that uh, because, uh, of course, Spider-Man is only one, there are two, so that's uh, because they embody the thing that uh, from uh, Spider-Man say that from a great uh, power comes great responsibility. So, yeah, they, 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 on, on their shoulder, they have a great responsibility <laughs> for the team because they're very good players, so they're, they're really good. Well, uh, thanks but for, another th- thank you for quoting thing- Uncle Ben. That was great. That was yeah, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then another thing that I like also are the the X Men because it's they are a group of superheroes, so we are a team. So not only not only the two of them, but all together they work together to try to to be better. You know what, <laughs> Coach? I will buy that. I will buy your argument. Uh, we will now yeah. call them the Whitecaps, the X Men, or yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. or maybe multiple <laughs> Spider Men. Um, okay, yeah. so tell me about the next game. What do you have going on? Ah, we have a fantastic uh, derby in uh, in Seattle tomorrow. So a short trip, uh, and uh, against uh, the team that uh, they're number two in the standings. And if we do a great job, if we win, we're gonna pass them, and uh, we're gonna go in the in the top four. That would be an, like, a massive achievement. It's one of the uh, I would say nicest away game that we always have because there's always a lot of people from Vancouver coming to see the game because, of course, it's the closest game uh, for our fans. So we'll have this, uh, I would say, extra push seeing a little section of the stadium that is uh, wide and blue. All right. Well, that, that's encouraging <laughs> a lot of people to go down there and do that, to go cheer on our X-Men, Vancouver Whitecaps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, coach, good luck. Have fun. <laughs> Bye-bye. Ciao. Ciao. That is Manny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They've made the playoffs, which is great. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, BC is tightening up some of the regulations around decriminalization of illicit drugs in our province. What does that mean exactly? Well, there have been a lot of concerns around the consumption of drugs in public places. We've heard that loud and clear everywhere, right? And new legislation introduced yesterday aims to deal with that. So to talk more about that, uh, Mike Farnworth joins us now, BC's Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Thanks for being here. Yeah, good morning. Okay, so tell me what this does. What it does is it lays out where you cannot use, uh, where there cannot be public use of drugs. So, for example, parks, playgrounds, sports fields, uh, beaches, um, bus stops, an area within six meters around a bus stop, for example, entrances to doorways to businesses to to residential buildings. um, All of those are are, are captured by the the new legislation. And it's in response to, um, you know, concerns we've heard from the public and from local government uh, that uh, uh, about uh, what they were seeing. And the reality is this, uh, decriminalization was never about uh, being able to use uh, open drug use whenever and wherever you wanted. Yeah, because there has been a lot of pushback from advocates in the last 24 hours saying, oh, BC is changing its mind, this is going to hurt uh, drug users, it stigmatizes them further. What do you say to that? 
No, we disagree with that. Um, we know that more than 12,000 people have died because of the toxic uh, drug crisis in this province. Indeed, it's a, an issue right across the country in North America. Um, we know that uh, the, 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 the old ways of criminalizing addicts was, is not working. It does not work. Uh, what we need to do is to ensure people have the services, that there are, there are places that are appropriate for them to use where they can get they can get help. But just as important, we need to balance that off with the, the, you know, the, the rights of the public to be able to use public spaces um, you know, with their families and their kids and, and not have to worry about, about uh, open, open drug use. Um, we've struck a balance. Um, there are some people who say the legislation goes too far and there'll be others who say it doesn't, doesn't go far enough. Um, this is about. This is not about you know criminalization of people who have a health uh, health issue, which is an addiction. Um, it's about a balance. Okay, so what kind of measures are included here for enforcement, though? So the it is a progressive approach. Um, what and does we that put mean? in place what it means is so if someone is using in a place where they're not supposed to, police uh, will uh, be able to go to them and say you're not. To use here, you cannot use here, uh, and then they are all. They would be able to then go if the person does not, um, um, you know, listen to what the, the the police are saying, does not move on. Uh, then the police can say, you know, if you don't, then your uh, the 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 drug that you have will be taken. And finally, there is uh, the provision of it can be a uh, a provincial offence. Um, and so that's the, the approach that's being taken. That's what police have wanted. This is not, in their view, it's not about enforcement and sticking people in jail. It's about being able to get people to move on, uh, getting them to, directing them to places where, you know, a safe consumption site or an overdose prevention site, uh, or being able to direct them to services um, in terms of, of, of treatment and services to, to assist them. Uh, this is what police have been telling us is what they need. This is what local governments have been telling us that is what is needed to be able to deal with, with situations that they have been seeing uh, in their communities. When you say, okay, then finally it's a provincial offense, does that mean that they can levy a fine? Like if somebody says, no, I'm not moving, what do you really do at that point? Well, a, a, a provincial offense could, you know, potentially be, be jailed, but that's not what this is about. It's about um, getting people to move on. To move to a more appropriate, to move to an appropriate location, and um, this is this is what we have. Uh, in, in, we did a significant amount of consultation. We talked with uh, health experts. We talked with public health officials. We talked to local government, UBCM, First Nations uh, Health Authority, First Nations uh, police, um, people with lived experience, um, to get input. And what we also want to ensure is that there's a standard approach right across the province. That's why the, the six-meter uh, rule is in place. Uh, it's uh, the s- similar to, um, you know, s- the smoking, the restrictions that we have around smoking and alcohol uh, and cannabis in public places as well. Okay, so how soon then could this potentially come into effect? Um, the bill has been tabled in the legislature. Uh, it will obviously up for debate. Uh, once it's passed and given royal assent, then the regulations will be put in place and uh, then it is the, uh, the, the, the law of the land, the law of the province. Okay. And while I have you, I have to ask you about this whole Surrey policing situation with this letter from the director of police services. Is it really that bad behind the scenes? Like, is, is, it, is there a frustration there that Surrey is not coming to the table to get this done? Uh, there's been a lot of work that has been that has been done. Uh, the the special advisor Jessica McDonald, who's a, you know a dis, has a, had a distinguished career uh, both in the public service and in the private sector, 
uh, has been working uh, very hard uh, with uh, Surrey Police Service, uh, meeting with the RCMP, uh, both locally and at the federal level, and with staff at the, the City of Hall. There's been a lot of work done. But the City of Surrey, uh, the Director of Police Service, who has a statutory responsibility to ensure that things are, are being done uh, in terms of regards to, to, to policing, um, has outlined a number of areas where there has been a lack of action by the City of Surrey, and that needs to, that needs to change. They need to get on with uh, moving the transition forward. The decision has been made, the decision is final, uh, and it's our expectation that that happens. And that's why the Director of Police Services sent the letter to the City of Surrey. The mayor says the provincial government hasn't given them a plan. Well, that's just wrong. There is, in fact, a plan. There has been a a plan right in place since the beginning of the transition. Um, The city paused that plan, um, but that plan is still there. There's two phases, phase one uh, and phase two. Uh, And phase one could be, uh, you know, resurrected. Uh, put you know uh, given uh, go ahead again and then uh, the phase two which is work uh, that uh, was anticipated would be required to be to be done between at the federal level and the provincial level um, and and with the city uh, that work can continue while that phase one uh, which is very much about the hiring and the redeployment of RCMP uh, can continue. Like, would you be willing to sit down with the mayor? Has that happened I, at all? Like, sit down and say, let's do this. I have met with the mayor um, um, when the decision was made. Uh, what really needs to happen is the, the work has to take place at that staff level um, to move things forward. And uh, that's the expectation that, uh, that needs to happen. What is the next step here? Well, uh, you know, the, the letter's been sent to the, to the, to the city, um, to the mayor's uh, police board, and to the city. Uh, and so, you know, um, the director of police services will be following up to see what action is now being done by the city to the areas that were outlined. At the same time, um, as I publicly stated in the past, I will be introducing legislation this session uh, to ensure that uh, this kind of situation does not happen again. What, is, what does that mean? So that, that once that's for other municipalities, right? So if you're going to change, you're going to continue with it, and this is how it's going to happen? That's the kind of, you know, those are the things that we have been discussing um, with, uh, with local government uh, that, uh, that, led, that I think everybody wants to ensure that, that no local government or any solicitor general has to go through this uh, situation again. What would you say to Surrey residents who are obviously very frustrated watching this whole situation unfold? Um, no, I understand their frustration, uh, but the, the decision has been made. The decision's final. I think most residents of Surrey understand and know that, and they want the transition to, to get on, and that's what, uh, that's what has to happen, uh, and it will get done. All right. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Appreciate that. Mike Farnworth, BC's Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General, talking about a couple of different things. One, uh, the new kind of rules that they're putting into place around the use of illicit drugs in public places. That's obviously going to be a change. Advocates aren't happy about it, as you heard, uh, but they are pushing forward with that. And, of course, the Surrey policing situation. Now, if you want to weigh in on those... Let's hear from you, simi at cknw.com. Would love to get your thoughts on it. This is going to be a continuing discussion today because what we're waiting for now is to hear what the mayor uh, has to say in response to the letter from the director of police services saying, you are obstructing us. We're trying to have these meetings. We're trying to get this thing done. You know, we're trying to provide you with information and you know, nothing is happening. So what does the mayor have to say about that? That is the next step in this story. And yes, we will be waiting to hear more. Just keep it tuned in here for the latest.